Race matters. 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 Acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories, and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. I'm on Gadigal land right now. You're also going to hear some interviews that took place on unceded Darawal and Wurundjeri country. We pay our respects to their elders past and present across these lands. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now, the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations people. You're listening to Race Matters. This is a show made by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Sharika Hellaludin. Darren and Sarah are away this week, so I'll be keeping you company this next hour. Today on the show, we are talking about the impacts that the ongoing pandemic has had on the lives and well-being for First Nations artists and creatives of colour. Look... We know that the pandemic has shifted the creative landscapes for artists all around. Venues have closed, jobs lost, funding cut, borders shut. There have been natural disasters. It can be hard to keep up with the day-to-day, let alone find the energy for a creative outlet. But what are the specific impacts for First Nations artists and creators of colour in industries where they were already experiencing disparities in representation and opportunity. Diversity Arts Australia are about to publish their second report documenting how work has been lost for creative communities and the effects this is having not only on a career but also the very real financial and emotional costs. The report also reveals that artists of colour continue to experience racism and that it actually increased during the pandemic. Today, you'll be hearing from a few different people. This week, we're joined by Waka Waka, Mary dancer Katina Olsen and Shyamala Esperan, dancer and founder of South Asian arts movement Bindi Bosses. They're both at very different points in their careers and have practices that are really embedded in their respective cultural communities. But despite their different locations, you're going to hear how they've moved through lost work, structural discrimination and forged places of hope. We're really grateful to be joined also by Alexia Derbis, one of the researchers who put together this report. You're going to hear her voice throughout today's episode, providing some really needed insight and recommendations of how to make sense of it all. We want to make really clear that we're not here to be divisive, but just shed some light and nuance through the lens of race matters. Hearing all these experiences side by side, we hope to paint a picture that adds some depth to the devastation the pandemic has had on our creative communities through the lens of anti-racism and what we care about here at Race Matters. Stick around to hear more from them.
Today on the show, we are doing a bit of a deep dive, unpacking a report that is about to be released from Diversity Arts Australia, detailing how the pandemic has impacted the loss of work for creators of colour and First Nations artists. We're going to hear from Alexia Derbis first to help us break down what came from this report at Diversity Arts. Yeah, so I'm the Research and Policy Manager at Diversity Arts Australia. And last year, we surveyed just under 200 creatives of colour and First Nations creatives on their experiences of lost work, as you said, racism, well-being during the pandemic. And that was following on from a 2020 report that we released as well. Um, the survey was aimed at what we call uh Caled, and I'm doing like little air quotes, so culturally and linguistically diverse artists and creative workers. So we were thinking about migrant, refugee, people of colour, um, but we also had a surprisingly high response from First Nations artists. So uh, 35% of respondents identified as Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander. Um, I just want to acknowledge that we didn't plan for that. We, we are a kind of a migrant ad advocacy org. And if we'd known that First Nations artists would identify with the survey, we would have ensured that we, we collaborated properly with First Nations researchers, organisations, um, including in like, you know, de designing the survey tool. So that's a bit of a limitation, um, but it happened and it's welcomed and cool because it allowed us to seek advice from Black Dance and Koori Heritage Trust on the significance of the findings and they supported us to make appropriate recommendations for First Nations artists. You know, we didn't want to conflate the experiences of artists of colour and First Nations uh, creatives um, and it's allowed us to really solidly set a foundation for our calls for racial equity in the arts. So at Diversity Arts, we have a policy of First Nations people first in any moves for racial equity um, or, you know, diversity, equity and inclusion, which is, you know, the way that this kind of gets spoken about a lot of the time. Uh, and we know that we can't meaningfully do our work as a migrant advocacy org without centering First Nations rights and sovereignty. Um, and so in saying that, we found really concerningly high levels among respondents of colour and First Nations respondents of lost work, impacting on their financial well-being, emotional well-being, um, as well as overall levels of increased racism during the pandemic. So that's racism within the arts and creative sectors. So like workplace institutionalized um, systemic racism, but also in everyday life. So people were experiencing microaggressions, abuse on the street, um, increased surveillance, problems, problems, sorry, accessing healthcare. Um, and so the research demonstrates that, you know, these oppressive practices that people of color, First Nations people are experiencing every day does end up conditioning how they can work, how they can create. So how has this played out for artists? Katina Olsen is a Waka Waka and Commonberry choreographer and performer. She's been in the industry for years, touring the globe and working with some of the most reputed companies here and abroad. Like many artists, things came to a halt for her two years ago and at a huge cost to her livelihood, her body and her well-being. Here's Katina. Both my collaborator and myself weren't and still aren't um, based 
anywhere because all of our work travels to so many different places. It works best that we essentially live on the road and then we, you know, find those places in between where we have our downtime. So like everyone, I lost, I don't know, I probably lost between 20 or $30,000 worth of work within a week. It all just came, you know, to a complete halt and that was really scary. I became, you know, pretty scared and concerned and I didn't have any, um, you know, my, I'm a grown woman, my parents aren't able to support me and I wouldn't ask, <laughs> even if they were. And I wasn't in a partnership that I could fall back on for any financial support. So yeah, I just took every job and every opportunity that I could. I taught class online. I don't like teaching dance to a screen, but I did everything that I could, you know, to pay the bills and just get by. Um, so what eventuated, I guess, over those two years was that I did become really busy and I just got to the point where I was just saying yes to everything for the fear of projects continuing to fall through because they would be postponed and then postponed and, and postponing is great, but you're left with a big gap of nothing and no time to fill it in. So. I started to double and triple book myself. I was working, you know, from seven, eight in the morning till midnight at night, working on projects, teaching, writing applications every single night for months. What has come with that has been uh, stress on my health and my relationships. I suffered multiple um, burnouts and breakdowns and it, it wasn't pretty at all. Yeah, I was lucky to have some really great support around me, but yeah, I was scared that I had no support and I couldn't stop until things got back to normal. And we're, you know, things have gotten better recently, but we're still in that state where, you know, when you freelance, jobs do fall through, but they still, yeah, it's, it's still more precarious than it was before all of this. I think those burnouts that I have had over the last couple of couple of years have continued to you know that's my body screaming out going stop you need to slow down I actually can't do this much. The toll to survive as an artist has been challenging all round but what the diversity arts report has revealed is that increased racism and discrimination hasn't been secondary to the precarity of the industry, but directly related to the financial and emotional well-being of creatives of colour. Shyamla Esperan is an independent movement artist, choreographer and educator trained in classical Indian dance. They're the founder of South Asian arts movement Bindi Bosses. Here's Shyamla speaking through their experiences of how the last few years and how the lockdown of Western Sydney of 2021 had a direct impact on the livelihoods of the artists they work with. Uh, so the, the last few years have been pretty intense. I am a self-employed full-time artist who makes the majority of my living from um, dance, teaching, um, performing and yeah, so that all that none of that was possible through the early days of the pandemic. Um, I think it was really interesting to see how the lockdowns and the horrendous treatment of the Western suburbs 
um, affected especially those artists and I can actually give you an example of um, that because uh, we got asked to do a music video at the time and the issue for me was most of my team is based in the western suburbs and they were they had very different um, rules compared to so I was on Darwell country I had others that were sort of um, in the eastern suburbs but that was a very direct um, it was interesting because they weren't allowed like because of the rules that were on them that period where we could sort of be doing a few little things to keep us going um it just wasn't fair it was so unfair that i was able to uh potentially go and do you know um a shoot but they were not because of the way the western suburbs was being treated and you know the harsher lockdown laws on them which directly impacted their work and their ability to do anything and not just them their you know their parents as well and these are the areas that um are not as affluent so the people who had the least money and the least who were already struggling the most got treated the harshest and yeah that had a very direct impact on arts and arts practice so for me, um, I I had to go back to my writing work, which was very tricky because I hadn't um, I had like I have a few cl regular clients that I work with, but I hadn't been doing it for a while. Um, and yeah, I, I had to basically yeah just <laughs> the government support wasn't really there in the early days. We didn't really know. Um, I was lucky that I was able to access job like I can't even remember job saver, job keeper, those ones. But I know a lot of people who weren't and, you know, my, my partner was an artist who, um, self-employed artist of color, uh, lives very hand to mouth on a very low income. And yeah, there just, there just wasn't the support or the thought for us and how people like us actually really, a lot of us do actually rely on gig to gig to be able to continue paying our rent, to continue being able to exist, to continue being able to thrive and work as artists and, and, you know, there's a headspace that goes along with that as well. And yeah, serious mental health issues, um, you know, arose a massive anxiety, just not knowing what was going on and a lot of anxiety over the opening up and the shutting down again and not really knowing at what point you should completely change careers. So I, I was getting to that point. I, I held on for as long as I could. Me being an artist is a very conscious choice and almost my only choice after you know, a decade of working in jobs that um, where I, w I didn't feel safe because there wasn't enough diversity and, you know, the structures in most sort of nine to five arrangements don't really think about people of color or create safe environments for us. So, you know, that was a big part of why I went out on my own to create a space. So not having that, um, yeah, just makes you think, what's the point? <laughs> like, you know, if I can't feel safe and, and respected and valued when I work, then what am I doing and um, why am I doing it? And I also, I think as artists as well, I, I felt a bit useless because I'm like, shit, I'm not a health worker. Like, what what am I really doing? Like, you know, I, I also had that feeling as well. Like, is what I'm doing even worthy? And yeah, I know it is now after coming out of lockdown and creating experiences for community and working with some amazing councils that are allowing us to um, create experiences for the communities that were hardest hit and the most poorly treated by the lockdowns and also working with kids and seeing how much they need dance and music and 
that outlet after everything that has happened. I, I now believe that what I do is important, but at the time I, I really didn't. I just thought, oh my gosh, what am I? What, you know, what is the point of dancing and singing and doing all these things? What's the point? We're unpacking an ongoing report from Diversity Arts Australia on how the last few years of the pandemic have had a specific toll on creatives of colour and First Nations artists. We've been hearing from researcher Alexia Derbis and artist Katina Olsen and Shyamla Eswaran. Oppressive practices like racism, surveillance, even lack of access to healthcare have had a direct impact on the creative output for marginalised artists. Have calls to social justice and anti-racism changed anything? Here's Alexia first up speaking to this. We asked the question about, you know, do you think racism has increased over the like pandemic? Because we wanted to monitor particularly Asian Australians like experiences of the racialization of COVID. And, you know, later with the Delta variant, the way that South Asian respondents might have experienced increased racism. And so that's what we were trying to measure. But we actually found that um, across the board, respondents were, were uh, reporting increased racism um, during the pandemic, and that could be in accessing healthcare or hyper-surveillance. So um, let's not forget what happened in Western Sydney last year, the extreme over-policing of marginalised people, um, the military in the streets and skies over Bankstown and, Le- and Liverpool. You know, people know and see this as classist, racist, you know, police state practice. And, you know, Other respondents would report being treated with suspicion on the streets, you know, like they were inherently rule breakers uh, in terms of the lockdown rules uh, because of their cultural background. And so, you know, I'm speaking outside of the arts and creative sectors and the, uh, the respondents work there. But I think that it's really important that leaders in the sector understand that these experiences that people are telling us about are their everyday reality. And of course, there's going to impact on um, your position as an artist or a creative worker. And these are stories and experiences which need to be expressed. They need to be told. We need to hear about them uh, outside of the research that we've done. You know, we, we know that people of colour, First Nations artists are telling their stories. They're ready to tell their stories um, and they should be provided, you know, proper support and compensation to do so. In terms of, you know, the Black Lives Matter kind of uptake in 2020, uh, we did ask people about how that, you know, uh, social movement uh, or whether that social movement had impacted their work and almost half suggested that it did. Uh, And so mostly that is in, you know, diversity, equity and inclusion strategies, like from organisations and arts institutions, uh, racial equity training um, and Uh, it's notable that First Nations respondents were more likely to suggest that BLM um, movement of 2020 had changed their work practices in some way. And I I want to acknowledge that uh, Indigenous activism and the Black Deaths in Custody movement like definitely has a longer history than 2020, but something did happen there with organisations kind of feeling the need to respond or react and speak about racism and and show that they're, you know, on board with the anti-racist kind of uh, movement that the people have been calling for. But in the report, I think what we want to really foreground is how the First Nations respondents as well as the Black African Australian respondents see this, see this kind of uh, change in the sector 
which has been influenced by Black Lives Matter. Um, what's happened also is increased burden and responsibility for small, you know, whether for small Black artists organisations um, as well as First Nations orgs to support the sector to do this work ethically, to do it in a way that's community led. And that that burden is really being felt across the creative industries. And people need to, we need to kind of keep that in mind that while it might be this positive move towards racial justice, um, that uh, there is an extra burden on First Nations and Black artists and creative workers to support that anti-racist work. Speaking to oppression through an art form is definitely not a new concept, but it's really concerning that in the research of this report that despite the flourishing of global anti-racist movements like Black Lives Matter, the burden still falls on vulnerable communities to exist and create within racist structures. So how do communities of colour navigate the complexities of this and express solidarity and responsibility as settlers through their art? Here's Shyamala speaking to this. Yeah, well, Black Lives Matter was huge. That was a huge one that had, a, I think, two things for that. It really um, had me reflecting on, because the closest, um, you know, situation to that is Black deaths in custody here of First Nations people. So realising that no matter what we do, we always need to remember and acknowledge that everything that we are doing as artists is happening on stolen, unceded land. You didn't have to be First Nations or Black to get really emotionally charged up by what was happening around that time. So I think that was one thing, just um, having that moment, I guess, recenter the spotlight on First Nations people and how much we as migrants, as settlers, need to always be cognizant and aware of the experience that we're having on stolen land and what that means and how we can amplify voices, work in collaboration with First Nations people, because that's the most dire thing that is happening in this country at the moment. And the other thing I think as a dancer is, especially through Bindi Bosses, we use hip hop a lot. Like hip hop is such a huge part of the art form that binds us all together across our generations. We range from 19 years old to I'm 38 this year. And through all of that, you know, think we, we put a Missy Elliott track on and that's the thing that glues us all together. But unpacking that underneath that, underneath that music that fuels us, that drives us, that holds us, that nourishes us is oppression and is struggle. And remembering that dance is not just movement, dance is story dance is resistance and I think reframing dance in that way is really important I think it's really important on you know living and practicing on in so-called Australia because we forget um that I I mean myself included we forget sometimes that when something that the things that resonate with us the most are the things that have probably come from the most oppression and there's a responsibility to never forget that and always integrate that into what we're doing and making sure that the cultural respect uh, is being paid and that and that whatever so-called profit or fame or whatever you're getting from those cultural styles, especially if they're outside of your bloodlines, that they are somehow benefiting those people whose stories you are telling through your body. So, yeah, I think we're all kind of slowly decolonizing and unpacking these things. And I think it's really important that we're not judging each other through that process, that one person isn't quite where you are 
because um, we've all come from very different experiences. We've all arrived here at different times or been born here. So yeah, I, I think that's that's going to be an ongoing thing now. But I think it's really positive that it brought social justice and the meaning and the essence of the art form back to the fore as well. And to say, you know, to save the world, you can't just take the things of our culture that make you look and feel good and forget the history of oppression that it's actually come from. So I think it's really important as artists now that you know what your values are, what you're trying to do and where you stand, and that you're very staunch in sticking to that. Um, it can be hard because, you know, as soon as you're taking any government money, it's always going to be problematic somewhere along the chain. But at the end of the day, I think you need to look at what you're, the space that you're occupying and the amount of good that you're able to do in that space by having your voice be a part of it. So I think just being really creative as an artist as to how you can disrupt um, and challenge your audiences through the opportunities that you get. And if you don't feel like you can do that or you're getting controlled too much, shut it down. We've been delving deep today, talking lost work for creators of colour and the direct impact of racism on creative output and cultural safety. We've seen art organisations make very public statements about racial justice and accountability. Are these just empty diversity and inclusion policies or has there been actual reckoning with and relinquishing of power? Here's researcher Alexia Durbis and artist Katina Olsen and Shyamala Esserin with their final thoughts. So we totally welcome these moves by organisations and institutions to have and continue these conversations about racism and for accountability in upholding their responsibilities to address it because of their power and influence. So that's it's welcome. Um, and I want to acknowledge the First Nations people and the people of colour who've often instigated uh, these moves, often putting themselves and their work and their name reputation on the line. Um, and I want to acknowledge the labour that comes with, you know, trying to hold these organisations to account. Um, we have seen good examples of change. And so diversity arts, this is kind of our thing. We like to kind of see what's going on and what strategies people are uh, putting in place and we try to support that as well and uh, um, an example that comes to mind is the Darling the Darlinghurst sorry theatre company um, in in how they're changing things up and broadening audiences and access and getting the people to the theatre uh, and bringing in communities to lead the engagement so I think you know these statements and um, these kind of ways that major institutions are kind of exposing themselves and you know in ways and, and kind of putting out these calls to hold themselves accountable, absolutely have the potential to lead to sustain change if these organisations and institutions are willing to do the work, which is actually ongoing work. So a diversity, equity and inclusion strategy is great. It's not enough though. And so you need to recognise that it's a truly ongoing process to embed racial justice and accountability into your organisation 
perhaps it's never even truly possible in the colony, but it's really worthwhile work, you know, to, to be kind of orienting your organisational practices towards safeguarding and, um, you know, pathways to employment for underrepresented people. And, yeah, we, we need, like, people of colour in leadership positions. But, yeah, um, that, that's what, what I'll say on that. Ongoing work, it's not just a conversation. I think the creative industries need to engage in sustained, open, honest and reflective conversations about race. Um, and these conversations need to be backed up with practice. So as we've been talking, you know, there's a bit, there has been a real appetite in recent years for diversity, equity and inclusion strategies, for training, for increasing cultural safety in the workplace. Um, but at times, this work can actually obfuscate deeper issues at play. So, you know, diversity, equity and inclusion work can actually work to invisibilise the very real, present, everyday struggle of racism and of being a racialized person. Um, this is particularly when these strategies of diversity and inclusion are used by leaders as a kind of box ticking exercise. And so that's why, you know, when I say we need to have a conversation about race, not, not just about diversity, but about race and structural systemic uh, exclusion, um, it needs to be backed up by strategies which are going to ensure the material conditions for historically excluded people to be able to take up their right to participate in the arts and in the cultural life of community. Um, so I'm not just talking about consulting with marginalised groups, uh, but actual collaboration and material practices which ensure proper compensation for marginalised artists, appropriate pathways to employment, to promotion. Um, so examples could be, you know, larger institutions or organisations which have uh, stable resources and funding, working with small to medium orgs, which tend to be where uh, people of colour, First Nations people are um, engaged and, and having a meaningful uh, collaboration there. Changing recruitment and hiring practices and acknowledging that people with lived experience of being a racialized person often come with skills outside of a traditional CV. So they, they didn't, you know, find arts kind of school. Um, and that, you know, those experiences that they have are actually transferable. They might not be recognized in a traditional kind of um, corporate context, um, but they are meaningful. Uh, we want to have proper employment uh, pathways, promotion pathways for underrepresented people. And this often has to do with leadership. And I, like, I can't stress this enough that um, diversifying, I'm doing air quotes again, leadership in the arts and creative sectors um, is re a really important and worthwhile endeavour. So we had some research in 2019 that shows how bad it, it, it is. So of the 2,000 leaders of our major cultural institutions, only 9% identify as culturally and linguistically diverse. And that's actually not even breaking down into, you know, the more underrepresented groups that fall under that big umbrella. 39% uh, of the Australian population identify as culturally and linguistically diverse. So there's a real underrepresentation there. And if your decision makers, your power wielders aren't diverse, if your board is all white, evidence shows you're going to have a problem with diversity and having culturally safe workplaces. And then in times of crisis, such as the pandemic, your more precariously employed employees are going to be the first to go and the first to lose work. Generally speaking, I think there has been a lot of, you know, performative allyship. And I think that we can, I think that we can do more. Um, yeah, totally want to acknowledge that there are great changes being made, especially in the dance industry. 
Um, but still, when I look at, you know, who's on stage, who's in those leadership roles, um, yeah, who's able to make main stage works, I'm like, they're, they're still could, this still could be better. We can still do better, you know, when I can only count on a couple of hands, you know, how many First Nations brothers and sisters there are and like mainstream dance companies in this country. I'm just like, okay, come on. <laughs> I'm just like, I want to see more. And I know I'm impatient, but I know my ancestors have done so much work, you know, to get us where we are. There's um, people that I work with that are doing the work to get us there. Like, um, it's been really great to see Karul, uh, Indigenous dance company on the Gold Coast. Um, they've received some great support in Queensland. So that's really cool to see another First Nations dance company pop up. But it's also great to have many different First Nations dance companies so we can somehow better reflect the many different nations that are on these lands. And I think that reflects the change that we want to continue to see when we're talking to our communities and a mob doing the work that gives me hope to see that, yeah, things are happening, changes are being made. I think there is genuinely, I, I do think people want to do the right thing, but they don't realize that the people who are in power are not the ones who can actually help make that change in the, like they need to be empowering and employing and paying the people who can make that change and including them within the organization. And in some cases, I have to say it, stuff needs to be burnt to the ground because those very systems need to be completely dismantled. When they try to retrofit them to suit this new purpose, it actually creates a very unsafe space for people of color that they bring in. It's even more damaging in a way because you actually are lulling people of color into a false sense of like security saying, we have a diversity and inclusion strategy. You know, we're ticking all those boxes. What do you mean you don't feel safe? Um, but they need to be listening and they need to actually, you know, things like micro, there need to be um, processes for reporting microaggressions and for actually handling things when they come up so that people of color can actually feel safe and empowered in those roles once they're brought in, because it's a, a lot is expected of us. And the knowledge that we are expected to share is very traumatic because it comes from us feeling excluded, feeling discriminated against. And we are expected to just sort of hand that over because it's for our own good to change things. But just the very process of explaining those things and trying to find the right words to make those experiences make sense to people who don't have them is very exhausting and can actually have a very negative impact on your mental health when you realize that the change is only happening to the extent that the people in power are comfortable with it. I'm very interested to see what or what big arts organizations are willing to really, really dismantle and rebuild because I think that's what needs to happen. It's really quite simple. Instead of just cherry picking brown and black people and trying to fit them into those organizations, those organizations just need to give those people money and creative control to do what they do. It's like, to me, until they sort themselves out, they need to be putting all their resources into brown and black and First Nations platforms because we are operate, operating them at a huge expense to ourselves. I'm just gonna go on record saying this. I've 
um, been operating Bindi Bosses since 2019 and I'm operating at a loss of 80,000 plus dollars. But I can't do that. And who can do that? The only reason I can do that is because I've got another um, background in comms. You know, it's not fair for artists to be expected to create, maintain, fund their own platforms and then also, you know, be co-opted into these other institutions for their benefit to try and help them when they haven't been created to support There is a really very real risk that the arts on this continent are currently losing a generation of artists whose stories need to be told, whose creative expression is essential to the fabric of cultural life, but who are not being supported to do so. Um, our research showed people are quitting. They they can't. They can't sustain uh, their creative practices without, you know, financial support, emotional support and, and you know, proper stable kind of livelihood. Uh, so we want this research and our recommendations to be considered, uh, taken on board by the people whose responsibility it actually is to materially safeguard artists' livelihoods. So while we are trying to recover the arts after the pandemic crisis, central to that plan must be supporting systemically excluded artists to be a central part of the recovery. And, you know, with the budget and, you know, the arts is set to potentially be losing more money like if you can believe that but even so even though the resources are so stretched we we need to centralize you know people who have been systemically excluded in our recovery plans uh, and so in our recommendations we talk about things uh, like diversity standards in you know screen for example equity tested funding so any you know public funding should be equity tested so that it's not just given to you know the same people all the time the bigger you know orgs but it's actually kind of tested against equity principles uh and you know uh tied to diversity standards so i think that we want to kind of acknowledge that this is a very urgent historical moment you know, we've got the climate crisis, the pandemic, and it requires a diversity of storytelling, um, of imagining futures, of acknowledging presence. That's actually necessary, that that diversity in, you know, creative expression. And it's also um, the right of everybody to be able to do so. Thank you to all our guests, Alexia, Katina and Shyamala, for speaking through their understandings that have been shaped by recent years and chatting through ways we can dismantle racist structures in creative industries. Part of why we do our show here at Race Matters is because we believe in the transformative power that the arts can have for social change. But it's near impossible to do this when you can barely get by as a marginalised person in the creative industries. We also know that for our communities, creative expression is an act of resistance that has existed in our cultures forever. Creators of colour and First Nation artists will continue to create in the site of resistance, but we also deserve real and meaningful change, to create from spaces of abundance and not scarcity. The last work report that we've been chatting about documents loss and discrimination that our communities have been fighting through beyond the pandemic and shows how the impact of racism in everyday lives aren't an add-on, but deeply interwoven in the ways we are able to not only be creative, but to be well. 
This sets the foundation for racial inequality to be radically shifted in creative industries and that the burden of calls to action should not continue to be at the cost of our own careers and well-being and safety. If you're an artist of colour who has been impacted by racism in the creative industries or if any of what you have heard today has resonated, we would love to hear from you. That is all from Race Matters this week. I am Sharika Halaludin. You can listen back to episodes of Race Matters at fbiradio.com slash race matters. In our show notes, we'll also be linking the report from Diversity Arts Australia mentioned throughout the episode, alongside some resources we've compiled for artists who have been impacted by any recent crises. Race matters. 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 Race matters.